0: G'day And welcome to MuseoPunks, the podcast for the Progressive Museum. My name is Suze Anderson and I will be your host today as we explore the boundary pushing practices in museums. In March this year, Courtney Johnston posted online the notes of a talk she'd given at the Public Galleries Summit in Sydney, Australia. At the heart of her talk was an interrogation about the fundamental role of museums in the world. And it questioned the often repeated line that museums are safe spaces for unsafe ideas. Reading her post was deeply unsettling for me because it brought into question how I understand museums as social institutions. But it also resonated with me, given the conversations we've covered here on MuseoPunks in recent months, which often lead to a conclusion that there are many people for whom museums are not safe spaces, and many ideas that are still too unsafe to be held and discussed within our institutional walls. The line museums as safe spaces for unsafe ideas, in some ways seems untrue or too simplistic in both of its parts. So I wanted to speak today with the woman who is credited with coining that phrase, Elaine Human Human-Gurion, to try to unpack what that concept meant when it was first originated and what it means today, and if it continues to be true today. What I discovered is that there are many more complex thoughts that tie into this question than I first imagined. So... Let's get into it. This for me has been one of those conversations that leaves me uh, my my breath was taken away when having this conversation. So I hope you enjoy it and find it as interesting and rewarding as I did. Elaine Human gurian is a consultant and advisor to museums and visitor centres that are beginning, building, or reinventing themselves. She grew up in Queens, New York, was an art teacher in elementary school, and to her surprise began her unplanned museum career in 1969 in a mobile crafts unit in Boston after the death of Martin Luther King. Since that time she has served as senior staff to museums interested in visitor focus and inclusion, as a deputy assistant director at the Smithsonian Institution, and since 1993 as the senior consultant to many national and memorial museums under construction around the world. Gurian serves as visiting faculty member to many museum graduate programs and Middle Management Training Institute. She thrives in association politics, holding many elected positions, and her writings are widely published and included in many academic courses. Elaine, welcome to MuseoPunks. Thank you very much
1: for inviting me.
0: Ah, it is so, so lovely to speak to you. I will admit that one of the academic courses that features some of your writings are some of the ones that I teach, so uh, this is a a thrill for me. So I wanted to start with an idea, and it's an idea that you've been credited with, although I gather from uh, our correspondence in the lead up to this episode may not be correctly credited with which is this idea that museums should be safe spaces for unsafe ideas and this is a concept i've been thinking about a lot for some months and i've really been grappling with because it's becoming more and more clear to me the more i spend time looking at visitor experience in museums that museums really don't feel like safe spaces for many many people so i was wondering if you could start by unpacking that idea and how it was credited to you if you didn't actually make that statement. Do you know where that, where that did originate from? Um,
1: it originated in Australia at the Australian Museums Conference and I said something like that but not as good alliteration. So I, I, um, I like that it's credited to me and um i get i get surly if it's credited to someone else but i didn't actually <laughs> say
0: it okay
1: um, um but i've been thinking the same as you about how to unpack that because i'm not sure i believe it anymore given the political life that we have and let me let me start by talking about the thing I'm the most concerned about, and then we'll go back and figure out how this works into that. What I'm most concerned about is how America is going to heal. Um, And in that regard, what does inclusion mean when inclusion really has to include supporters of the side that we're not on and I find myself thinking that we have been talking about inclusion by handpicking who we were interested in including and not who we were not interested in including I certainly feel guilty about that so safe space for unsafe ideas safe space means Everybody is welcome. Um, I write a lot about strangers in safe spaces, being able to see each other and how I think that is the foundation of urban peace. And then it's not credited enough, just the very act of seeing, not interacting, but seeing each other and being able to observe the humanity of others is an essential part of the really most basic part of civility and peacefulness. Um, So I write about what that might mean in terms of a museum building. So if we look at safe spaces, what I'm really talking about is a place where somebody feels they can enter and when they leave, they will be physically intact. I mean, in the most basic way that their decision to walk over the threshold will not in any way threaten them physically.
0: Yeah. One of the papers that you uh, wrote or, or speeches that you've given was around that idea of threshold fear, and I found that a really influential paper for me. It's one of the ones that I share with my students time and time again because you talk about the physical and programmatic barriers that make it difficult for the uninitiated to experience the museum. And I think at the heart that's that's the start of this conversation right is what are the barriers that museums erect whether deliberately or not that make it difficult for visitors to come into the museum but also to then feel comfortable in that space would you agree that that's sort of where we're starting at
1: um yeah but i'd start even further back which is to now suggest that museums have an obligation in the public sphere And that what museums have done, and I think intentionally, is to think their front door is the entrance to a private space. And legally, that may be actually true. Um, And the legality of it offers museums um, much legal protection in terms of acting out. People who are picketing inside may not be allowed to picket inside and have to picket outside, for example, or people who are leafleting inside might be legally expelled to be outside. So I I have found the legal definition of it being a private space when I was at the Holocaust Museum useful. especially when one wants to talk about action that is violent, harmful to the safety of others. But metaphorically, public space is very different than the lobby of a private space. And the very act of entering into a private space requires a certain kind of self-confidence. I like to say that I train my grandchildren to enter the Ritz Carlton, to use the bathroom by looking like we belong there. I mean, it's a, it's a bravado act because I know where the public toilet, I know where the toilet is, but it's not public. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Sorry. Getting into this then, does that mean, I mean, I still think of museums as public spaces, but am I thinking about museums wrong just conceptually? Are museums not actually public spaces? Well, conceptually you
1: and I agree. I think of museums not only as public spaces, but I think they have an obligation to be public spaces and that they're their conscious effort to be part of the public space is a necessary ingredient for public safety. But I think museums generally, when you, using your word, unpack it, think of their front door as the beginning of private space, of intentional use space, of entering space, and not as part of the public square.
0: Well, then does that change how we, I suppose we writ large, how we conceive of then the role of museums fundamentally? Uh, you know, if, if we are thinking about then the museum as uh, maybe conceived of by the public as a public space but actually acting as a private entity, does that... I mean, does that fundamentally start to shift how we then need to think about what museums are and do and the purpose they serve?
1: Absolutely. And that's where I am right now. Uh, Absolutely. I think museums intentionally or unintentionally have believed that their offerings are valuable in the public sphere, but that you have to pass some requirements to enter their space. And um, I disagree with that. And at the same time, I'm deeply, almost obsessively focused on what is civility in the public realm. Mm -hmm. I'm not interested in the old fashioned definition of anarchy where all behaviors are acceptable. I'm quite unhappy with um members of the progressive wing of the democratic party who are now harassing the opposition while they eat dinner i don't think that's useful in the public realm and so i'm uh, i'm unclear about what is how do we train civility especially when i mean when I don't mean the transfer of etiquette of the upper class to the lower class and when I mean some lateral transfer of um, community acceptance of behavior that is starts off being specific to one culture or another um, and that is very complicated and we don't have any system of that but you can see some of it changing the easiest place to look at that is how much how the library has gone from we all have to be quiet in all spaces all the time to we now have community spaces and if you want to be quiet we have a special quiet room that's the kind of change in a community asset that I'm very interested in
0: Yeah, when we were first emailing to set up this episode, you mentioned um, that you often write that you've wanted to build a museum that your mother would go to because as a German-Jewish immigrant during the time of the Holocaust, she found all institutions to be dangerous. And it seems to me with this erosion of trust in institutions and with ultimately the erosion of the public sphere and of public spaces where people do feel comfortable necessarily to be having, I think, quite difficult conversations. Um, museums have retained a greater share of public trust than a lot of other institutions. But I know that you have been thinking about what these, the multiple layers of activity that go into creating this idea of civility for strangers. And, and and that's also about being welcoming and about creating inclusion in museums and in public institutions. You've just mentioned the library becoming a place for um, sort of community voice and community spaces first and then quiet reading second. What are the other types of activities that you then see in museums that would help make civility, that civility for strangers, um, more open, more appropriate, more acceptable?
1: Um, I turn out to be much more conservative than I expected about subject matter choice. Um, I'm, I'm working now, fascinatingly for me, on the Museum of the Euromaidan. It's the it's the Museum of the Revolution in Kyiv, Ukraine, that changed the country from um, Russian-leaning to Western-leaning. And that revolution ended five years ago, and the partisans of that revolution, the actual partisans, are... are under the help of the current government building the Museum of the Euromaidan. And so I said to them just two weeks ago, um, you have two choices about your exhibition. You can write an exhibition, produce an exhibition in which there are good guys and bad guys, and you were the victors, and you can all celebrate about how you overcome, it's a David and Goliath story. and." you guys will all be happy but it won't heal the country because the bad guys are alive and are citizens of your country so what's your plan and the director surprising me because this is this is a brand new revolution said to me we cannot do that we must include the other people we must include the notion that freedom includes people that we don't agree with, then we will have to find, they're called Berkut, we will have to find members of the opposition who are armed and use bullets that we can talk to and present in the museum. That's very, very unusual. Museums of Memorial um, tend to set up this this duality that they are moral stories of good guys and bad guys which leads to a country not healing and reconciliation usually takes decades so i'm really interested in how we in our exhibition choice are already mindful of what is reconciliation going to look like Because this current administration, at some point, unless it really does destroy our democracy, has to end. And we really do have to heal this country back into some form where diversity was thought of as a progressive next. And I don't see any other way of doing that than including the voices in some civil manner right from the beginning.
0: Yeah, in some of your recent talks you've been speaking about museums embracing complexity and including multiple outcomes in exhibitions as a museum norm, and I think you're just giving an example of some of the ways that that can start to work in practice, that it is explicitly not seeing stories as good and bad but actually maybe more just embracing the humanity at stake in all of us and acknowledging that We all have all of these features within ourselves. But that's, it sounds incredibly difficult in terms of using that as a storytelling feature. Museums still only have limited space and, you know, limited resources. How do we embrace complexity at a practical level?
1: Uh, You're asking all the hard questions. (laughs) (laughs) I usually ask the hard questions <laughs> and, and don't always have any answers. I have a partial answer to the complexity issue. okay and and it goes as follows: If you think of our objects as data, um and you think of the the information or direction that we want to tell a story about our, object as only one of the data points and everybody easily agrees to that. I mean that you can do multiple exhibitions about any object and all of them can be accurate. Then I think we should enter our exhibition by producing the same exhibition we always produced and then having layers and layers of alternative technique, most of it invisible, that allows people to bypass the story if they want and use the object as data for a construction of their own. And that's most easily seen when you go to a museum in which there are enthusiasts, car museums, Uh The enthusiasts never use the story because the story is written for the novice and the enthusiast is really interested in some light bulb or key joint or something that they know much more about than almost anyone. And so they use the the raw data for their own purposes. What they don't get is to tell us about what they have found. We haven't included them as the experts that they are, so they happily go in and do what they're going to look at and leave. And it's not hard anymore for them to be included in some database, which is not only visible when you want to see it. So I think we have all the techniques. What we don't have is a willingness To think that the public is smart enough to do with with our objects as they will. Um, We still retain this stern teacherly quality. This is this, this, and we will tell you what you should know about it. I don't want to stop that particularly, but I certainly want to soften the edges. This is a, this for those who want to go down that path. But here are 14 other simple ways you can reuse it by recombining it, mostly t- technologically in ways that are useful for you.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting. It's one of the things I've been grappling with myself as I think about Um, the evolution of museum storytelling as I think about museum technology which is a space I came in and participatory culture in museums at the same time as we're living in this sort of post-truth environment where things can easily be dismissed as being true or not true or used or not used and I'm really trying to Grapple with or make sense of how we have shared frameworks for understanding, but also come to um, a space where we acknowledge and include the the multitudes of perspectives that are there, the multiple multitudes of truths that we have that surround our objects, and I think uh, trying to figure out how we embrace both of those realities is a really interesting challenge at the moment that I don't have any answers to, but I'm really curious how people are thinking about and grappling with these ideas. Well,
1: one of the things in a more civil society that we're going to have to deal with, um, Pat Moynihan famously said, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. If you translate that to say that the object is a fact, but that everything about it is an opinion, then that's fascinating. I mean, we can start to say that to the public, that this is a creation without, it's clearly a creation, this is a real thing, but what it means and what it coheres to and where it gets connected has really multiple trails. And I think the public might be interested in that if we started to teach them the ways to do that. It's a little like Google. I mean, everybody now knows how to use Google. And they start with an idea and then wander about. So I I just think museums can figure this out.
0: Yeah, I really like that idea. So I just want to go back to something you mentioned right at the start of the show. You were talking about inclusion and that Maybe museums have been a little bit too blinkered in the way that they have been defining or thinking about what inclusion means. Could you unpack that a little bit further for us?
1: Yeah, and, it, and thank you for asking because now you and I are about to unpack in a journey that isn't totally clear to me. It, it's very clear that there is huge overlap in the humanity of all American citizens or in humanity altogether. But it means that the rhetoric of this overlap has to be more prominent than the rhetoric of the non-overlap part of the story. And that suggests to me that both sides have to acknowledge that there's partial truth I mean, I use the abortion issue all the time, at least for myself. Mm-hmm. Having an abortion, I think, it is the is the for some the best possible choice of of terrible choices. Mm-hmm. It isn't the best possible choice. It isn't a good choice. It's never a good choice, and it does terrible things to a woman's body and to a woman's psyche. It is a very difficult choice to be made. If we started to say that, that given all the bad choices of a personal scene, this is the one I choose. That's a different rhetoric than, you know, women should be free to make choice, full stop, Without discussing that, that's a painful, complicated, and, and very difficult decision for a woman. And what would happen if the terms of that then started to be where we agreed? What we don't agree with is the ultimate decision-making among bad choices. That's, that's not the way it's framed and would we see each other's humanity better if we started from the part where we agreed rather than the part where we disagreed
0: right so it's sort of looking for um the points of commonality first and then ways of exploring divergence um and using that as a way of sort of um trying to create a framework against polarization, ultimately.
1: Yes, and and I'm currently thinking that the museum exhibition as a format can be one of the places. We're back to unsafe ideas, which is the part we didn't unpack, and that the exhibition itself can start at the commonalities and work outward rather than at the extremes and work inward or never work inward and i i'm, I'm watching ukraine trying to struggle with their role in babayar um babayar was a place where the germans killed 24000 jews in a 48 hour period by firing squad it's right it's walking distance from downtown Kiev. It's, I don't know, 70 years, 80, 90 years later. The struggle really is that everybody had to know about it. And the notion of collaboration and fear and bystanderness is so difficult for a nation that they haven't been able to figure out what to do with it. This didn't happen only by Germans using firing squad, though, in fact, only Germans pulled the triggers. And I, I'm, even though I'm a Jew of that era, I, I have enormous sympathy for the pressures of a subjugated people in what must have been a terrible set of decisions. I hope I would have made a different decision. But because Nobody can figure out how to come to grips with the humanity of this unspeakable crime. Ninety years later there still is no marker that says here are 24,000 Jews were killed.
0: One of the things I've been um, thinking about a lot personally this year and over the last couple of years is how to stay open and vulnerable and not be closed off to different perspectives or the people who hold different perspectives but also to continue forward and to find ways to um, I guess to seek knowledge and to seek understanding but also um, doing so is often hurtful and I think what you're talking about is that process in a in a larger context, in an institutionalized context of being open and being vulnerable to these things that are can actually be quite painful, but also that are very personal without wanting to damage or hurt the other people who are also in a similar situation. And and that difficulty I, I don't know whether it is something that institutions can enable or or from your experience, you've you've worked with so many memorial sites. What are the ones that have really helped sort of embrace these moments of trauma and helped promote that healing?
1: Well, the, the one that always stands out, which I haven't worked in, is Nelson Mandela's ability to come forward and – and try to put a healing government together. And the fact that he didn't do it a hundred percent. I mean, one of the important elements and I've just worked with seventeen year olds at Interlock and one is to accept that we can't have perfection and that ninety five percent of our effort being good should give us satisfaction. And one of the real anti-civility things is our training of of exquisite criticism, which I think is really, really destructive. We, we really do need to look at effort and how much people get right. So Nelson Mandela got a whole lot right, even in the midst of a whole lot wrong um there's a museum i've just seen about the trauma in medellin colombia that is um is really quite amazing about the human condition um so i i think it is possible but uh, but let me suggest as i did before i'm not talking about anarchy and and so i'm now comforted with the uh, notion that each of us have to perfect the edge of our own personal life called this far and no further Mm -hmm. that there is a no saying we need to do um and the no saying has real consequences i mean that's the the issue of saying, no, that's the issue for bystanders. Um, but this far and no further is what they mean about our moral core. And it's completely personal. And I cannot presume to have anybody else's moral core. But I long ago decided this far and no further is an internalized um clock guideline in which you, in your workplace and in your citizenry, say, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. Um, What's been the most disappointing about the American political scene is we don't have enough of that going on.
0: Mm -hmm. One of the, I think, major structural influences in museums is obviously their funding structure and their boards. how then with this idea of no and no further, how do we simultaneously recognise the power of funders and sort of the the core funders? There's a relatively small number of core funders in a lot of institutional spaces and the donor class but also maintain healthy independence from them. How, how do we, um, and this is often much more museum leaders, how do they have that sense of no and no further in that, um, in those decision-makings. It's the exact
1: right question to ask, um, the the exact right follow on question and the simplest answer is also the most difficult answer. And that is you have to be willing to give up your job. Mm -hmm. Um, and this far and no further, um, varies by everybody, and one hopes you also, at the same time, are perfecting diversionary tactics that allow funders who are putting pressure on you to to violate your own internal core. You have figured out some other methodology to keep them happy that still is within your wheelhouse. Um, but ultimately, you have to be willing to lose your job. Um, you cannot protect your job and the livelihood at all costs and have um, and be able to say no, and that's that's i I don't know anything else to do. On the other hand, I also want to say that this collusion in which we are as obligated, to the super rich, and they in return feel, some of them, only some of them, feel quite entitled to push you past your moral core, is a structural problem, and we haven't been willing to take that on. Most of the nations in the world, the museum sector, is not private and when they listen to what goes on in America they are surprised. And having said that, the the government sector controlling museums has a set of its own problems that are completely similar. So it isn't totally a better system at all because personal privilege comes with power and they push you to do similar things. So It is this organization structure in which people by virtue of their personal power or their personal wealth are willing to subvert an organization. And at that point, it is all up to individuals who make decisions. And whether they can figure out an alternate route, I try very hard to help them, so we don't have to get to this, what I guess in Congress would be called the nuclear option, but um, you you have to personally be willing to have that in your mind as you set about trying any diversionary action that you can think of.
0: Yeah, it's funny, in one of my classes that I teach, uh, which is a history and theory class, a museum history and theory class, we were talking just this week about where power exists in the museum and the fact that power can actually exist in all places because there are different ways of having power relationships, but that's not to say that um, you have all the power all the time More just there are ways that you can use your power. But sometimes that requires sacrifice, as you say. Sometimes it is ultimately the choice of if I don't agree with this thing, then I actually need to leave and that may or may not be possible for you if you have other employment options, uh, family backup, those kinds of things. And so that sense of what power looks like and where it exists is a really complex thing that, of course, then shapes how people are able to influence and interact with museums.
1: It is, but if you look at the Holocaust analogue, which is, the righteous among the christians that that's a whole group of people that are voted in every year by yad vashem who risked saving people they made a decision in which their life was at stake and there's been a lot of research about this altruistic demand of humans as well so There is a kind of yin and yang in the human condition in which people make decisions regardless of the backup they have, and they make it at different places. It isn't a decision that they make casually or early, and therefore this far and no further is a movable feast, but there is ultimately a decision, if you've tried everything else, where you say, I can't live that way.
0: Yeah. Elaine, you came to museums in 1969, which was, as it says in the bios, after the death of Martin Luther King and I think really in the wake of another year that significantly reshaped American society. To what extent do you think your career in museums and your perspectives have been shaped by that time that you entered the sector?
1: Um, a lot, but the thing that shaped my entire career is the Holocaust and the fact that I was an American-born child, but I was seven when the, mus- when the war was over, and I had immigrant parents who were obsessed with saving their relatives. Um, that said, I wasn't a political activist until that time. I didn't know the tools, so the um, Martin Luther King assassination was at the same time as the Vietnam protests, and I entered in the Vietnam protest side um, in about that time. Um, what i what i learned about that time when entering was how what the tools were and i entered on the political activist side i started working for kevin white who was the mayor of boston because he wanted to keep his city safe a year after the riots and then he gave us the institute of contemporary art so all, it had been in receivership and closed, so that all of us who went to the Museum of Contemporary Art, which is now a quite famous contemporary art museum, were activists in an unheated building. Um, so I started way out in left field. I don't. I wasn't trained in museums, and this all all started in that sector. And then I went to Boston Children's Museum and worked for Michael Spock, the son of Ben Spock, one of the most famous activists of the time. So I didn't enter into a significant centrist museum until I became the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Museums in the Smithsonian, which came as a shock to me, and I think to them. So I entered way at the top of the Centrist Museum from a 20-year career on the left wing already.
0: How different was your thinking then at that point from what you were seeing, I guess, in the mainstream of museums? And have you seen shifts in the sector since that time?
1: Um, The answer is very complicated. The people on the inclusion side of the museum world are there by virtue of their political commitment, and the stream of the left wing of the museum world is as old as the stream of the right traditional museum. Um, So Barnum, has a museum at the same time museums of kings and queens are starting, and and um, the Newark Museum with John Cotton Dana is happening at the same time as other big places. So this impulse is always there, just like the impulse of changing the education sector is always there and at the same time the museum world where the objects are related to power and acquisitiveness and control are always there. So this struggle is an ongoing one. It's always been there. That said, there is a kind of cross current of contagion. So people adopt technique um from one sector to another and the question is always is that progressive technique from a philosophic point of view or is it window dressing to look progressive and you can only tell that by by watching other many more subtle things to know which is which
0: hmm. when we when we started you mentioned that you now feel this new urgency around civility and museums role in promoting it. Moving forward, what do you see as being the most essential aspect of, you know, the fundamental role of museums, but also the tools for helping museums create or address the civil society? I wish
1: I knew. Um, for me who grew up during the Holocaust, but safe in America, um, it, it is unthinkable that um, American democracy is in the state that it is. It is unthinkable that I didn't see it coming that my fellow citizens are, I maybe a half of my fellow citizens are as angry about things that I'm glad about, and that we are so polar opposite. I I, I find it flummoxing. Um, Beside being alarmed, I I think the museum sector has something important to play in this. And it is because of what you said, Suze, which is that it's one of the institutions that's trusted. Now, you have to unpack trusted because it's trusted but not attended, which is interesting. So it's trusted by people who also trust having a church they don't go to. Um, that it is a a, a foundation stone for society, but not one they find effective. So I think the question is, how can museums effectively, not, not just continue their old business, but effectively enter into the healing process of strangers who actually don't know each other? I mean, I don't know a single person who voted unlike me and as the pundits like to point out now that's alarming how come i don't know any of them and so rather than feeling um satisfied that you know i know only the good guys i am deeply interested in how it is that i could know the opposition in terms that i would find civil and humanizing and if museums are not thinking about this every single day, I, I don't know what they should be thinking about. Um, we are, America is in danger of coming apart and America looked like a place that couldn't possibly come apart. I, I didn't even have it in my calculus. We knew how to respectfully, even though heatedly disagree. We knew how to protest, though sometimes that got violated. But mostly we believed in the bedrock of American democracy. And I think there is lots of evidence that the bedrock is not holding. And so museums have to figure out their role. And I think their role is subtle. Filled with silt filled with modeling it's filled with entering into areas of healing and I I wish I thought it would be really effective but I think it will be only partly effective nevertheless I think we have to try and figure out how to have this country hold
0: together yeah Elaine this is in some ways this is the moment for us to finish this conversation but at the same time I don't want to finish this conversation ever because I think we are at this point much like you where uh, these are the essential conversations that we need to be having if people do want to keep talking with you about this, if they want to find out more about what you're thinking, if they just want to have a conversation that brings up nuance and questions rather than simple answers, how can they find you or get in contact with you? Oh, I
1: love talking to people. Um, my grandchildren think I know everybody in the world because I talk to total strangers. <laughs> my <laughs> my husband
0: thinks <laughs> my husband thinks I know every Australian in the world, but that might just be because he thinks Australia is a very small place and because mostly we <laughs> do know each other.
1: <laughs> um, my website has all my uh, writings, and they are all available. Um, all my Ooh. PowerPoints are on SlideShare and they're all available. And my email is egurian at egurian.com. And anybody who wishes to write to me is more than free to do that. In the world where you live in your head, having more friends who also wanna live in their heads is a rare treat. So I look forward to talking to anybody about any idea.
0: Elaine, it has been... Such uh, a pleasure and for me, you know, I've been following your work for so many years to to have you on Museo Punks is a thrill and I'm so grateful that you have spent the time with us.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I had a very good time myself.
0: Elaine, thank you so so much for joining me on Museo Punks this month. It has been so useful to get a sense of your perspectives, given that you've been at the heart of progressive practice in museums for almost 50 years. Museo Punks is presented every month by the American Alliance of Museums. You can connect with me on Twitter at museopunks, or check out the extended show notes at museopunks.org. And, of course, you can subscribe anytime at iTunes or Stitcher.